myself, my wants, my will, my desires, my dreams, my goals. Um, we don't call it Hedlinism anymore. We just call it humanism, in which I am worried that people like myself and many, many others will be edited out of society. everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you're tuning in. Grateful for you and grateful that uh, we get to play a small part on your journey. Um, what we want to do this episode is continue the conversation from last episode that began with a question that we got uh, via the interwebs that simply said, Mike, what's your view of abortion and what advice would you have uh, to give to someone struggling with the decision of whether or not to have one? And, you know, holy cow, I mean, what a huge, what a huge question. And we recognize, I recognize, of course, as a man, that um, I can't understand, empathize with what the decision-making process must feel like. In fact, I got an email from someone this morning that was just talking about how painful it was to give your child up for adoption. You know, we make it sound like um, it's a, that's an easy decision, and I, I can't imagine how hard that decision was. And so... We want to be very gentle as we approach these uh, topics. We want to we want to, you know, frame these things relationally as a community, um, and we want to talk through. We don't want to shy away from the hard questions that people are asking and the arguments that are being put forward in the the public sphere. One of the fun things about doing this podcast is that I keep hearing from a significant number of our listeners who are not Jesus followers. And I love that you're engaging and I love that you're wrestling and I love that you're disagreeing or agreeing or whatever. Uh, I think that is incredible. Um, but I also, you know, that also we cause that causes us to recognize that uh, there's a load of, you know, opinion on this. And um, and so what I want to do today is I want to answer the first part of that question. What's your view of abortion? Uh, obviously, I come at it from a Jesus uh, follower perspective, recognizing that there are other Christians who believe differently. Uh, I, I do think that there are that I can make the the argument, of course, that the kingdom of God orients itself around life and nonviolence in the way that Jesus lived it, taught it, modeled it for us. Um, and so, as we said last time, you know, I I, I will not. Uh, shy away from being honest and simply saying, I would, you know, in most circumstances, if at all possible, I would encourage uh, people wrestling with this issue to keep the child at least to term. And, uh, but I would never do that without wanting to be a part of a community and being someone that would help them uh, bear the cost of that, not just, you know, pre-birth, but after birth as well. Um, I want to deal with the first part of the question, though. What is your view of abortion? And I want to answer it by um, looking at how the earliest Christians answered this in the world they found themselves in, in the first century. And so what I want to do is I want to situate, um, because there was a worldview that, that the, the early Christians were drenched within, that ethical decisions around uh, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, suicide, were being framed under. And uh, that interpretive framework, at least as much as I can understand it, seems to be the same interpretive framework operative today as we have some of these conversations. And so I want to make the case that the, the operative framework guiding 
people around these questions in the first century is very similar to the one guiding us today, and that uh, one of the roles of uh, Jesus' people in the world is to tell a different story, a counter-narrative to that, and to place abortion topics like that within this greater counter-narrative. So please listen to the previous episode first to kind of frame some things. What we want to talk about today, and some some of you I know have heard me talk about this before, but um, our child was born with Down syndrome, and, and that caused me to genuinely grow curious about how the earliest church wrestled with um, issues of abortion and infanticide in particular, because of course, uh, there, there is a well-known history of taking, uh, kids like Seth and, uh, doing away with them through various means. And so, uh, I want to go back to the ancient world to a time several centuries before the birth of Jesus, when a man named Alexander the Great, uh, conquered the known Western world. And Alexander, you can read up all about this, but Alexander embarked on a project to Hellenize, to make Greek every area he conquered. It wasn't just a campaign of military conquest, but in our kind of modern modern language, it was to win hearts and minds to the Greek worldview. And so not only would, you know, your military, military be, you know, done away with, Alexander was a great leader, great general, great warrior, But then elements of the Greek worldview were systematically introduced to win you over. Alexander thought he was doing the world a favor by bringing culture. And what he meant by culture was the the Hellenistic project, the Hellenistic program. Um, Hellenism is a view that is is very simply summed up by the Greek philosopher Protagoras um, in in the 400s BC. He simply said, and, and this is Hellenism. Man, and, and, and we're not talking about human, we're talking about man, is the measure of all things, of what is and what is not. So if you want to know what the highest, uh, uh, you know, uh, view or form of beauty is, then you look at the perfectly proportioned male body. If you want to know uh, the, the measure of truth, you, you engage in philosophy and logic and reasoning, and, um, and the, the, human, the human declaration of truth is what truth turns out to be, right? Uh, if you're looking for virtue, it's, it's, um, there were all sorts of ways to become virtuous in the Greek culture. And, so, and then the Romans sort of adopted this. They, they made some changes that we'll talk about in a little bit. But the idea was that the human being was the center of the world. And the human being, that was the, per, that was the ideal and everything was measured against that, right? And, and not just the human being, but the human male. I mean, Aristotle has this horrific line where he says, I think it's in politics, where he says that, that women are the first step on a road to deformity, so <laughs> you can't be much clearer in your low view of women than that. So the human, the physical human body, uh, the, the human mind, the human virtue, human accomplishment, all of this was at the center of Greek and Roman culture. All of this was the pursuit, everything, all the conversations were about this, so on and so on and so on. Now, what Alexander would do, and it was genius, 
He would conquer a region, and in the largest city in the area, he would introduce buildings. Uh, he would introduce something called a gymnasium, which um, back then was known as a place of nakedness. You would train uh, men. You would train as uh, you would train in the nude, and uh, you would train for the great athletic contests and so on. But also, there was uh, classrooms around the kind of the open area where you would, you know, train. There were classrooms where you would learn the Greek language, you would learn the Greek poets, you would learn Greek philosophy, you would learn mathematics, um, and you were indoctrinated into the Hellenistic worldview. Um, uh, Alexander would, you know, build arenas where great athletic contests would take place. And that, you know, athletic feats became, and they always were, but they became so central to the community life uh, in Greek and Roman cities. You would build temples where uh, the Greek gods and the goddesses were worshipped, and you would give offerings to them, and and there was a great drama behind the scenes between the Greek gods and goddesses that would play out. And then um, you would you Alexander would build a theater where you would actually watch these great tragedies, the, these great epics, these great stories about the gods, uh, kind of worked out. And and what began to happen, of course, and th- this was his goal all along, is that he began to turn the world Greek. The Greek language, the Greek value system, uh, all of these sorts of things. And then Rome, when Rome swept, you know, the known world and expanded it, uh, Rome just kind of borrowed pretty heavily from Greek thought, uh, particularly this value system. And uh, when you have a value system that values the the perfect, uh, the perfect male form, the perfect uh, logical reasoning from from human beings, the perfect expressions of virtue from human beings. Um, when human accomplishment is what's glorified, then those who don't fit, those who aren't as beautiful or virtuous or uh, as logical, those who uh, are misshapen and deformed, uh, those people get pushed to the margins. And so, ever since Seth's birth, I've been fascinated by how deformity. Um, and disability and, um, and infants who were unwanted, how all of that was handled in a Hellenistic worldview. And, um, and so I, I want to get into some stuff, like I said, that some of you have heard. Uh, the historian Roger Garland, um, he wrote a book called The Eye of the Beholder, Deformity and Disability in the Ancient or in the Greco-Roman World. Um, He says this, the Roman world was brutal and generally indifferent to suffering. Sympathy and mercy were weaknesses, virtues, anathema to those of Rome. The ancient world was both decadent and cruel. The practice of infanticide, for example, was widespread and legal throughout the Greek and Roman world during the early days of Christianity. In fact, abortion, infanticide, and child sacrifice were extremely common throughout the ancient world. Now, I got into this topic. Uh, because of the the, pra- the ancient practice called the exposure of infants. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about what that is in a second. But there was a great deal of religious pressure. If there was anything wrong with the infant, there was a, a great deal of religious pressure, not just economic pressure, another mouth to feed, but religious pressure to get rid of that infant. Why? And again, I'm quoting Garland. The birth of a deformed child was interpreted by the Greeks as a punishment inflicted 
on its parents by the gods. It therefore follows that the pressure upon such parents to expose their offspring must have been considerable. Since the Greeks believed that the birth of a healthy and viable infant was dependent upon the goodwill of the gods, it followed that the birth of one who was congenitally deformed was seen as an expression of their ill will and anger. And so there was a great deal of pressure then to do something, to get rid of that ill will uh, or punishment by, and what you would do is that you would um, expose the infant. Now, there were different ways you could do this. Some, some advocated just killing the infant outright, drowning throwing into a lake, river, or ocean. Um, exposure was, was one of the more common practices where you would, sometimes with clothes, sometimes the infant would be naked, but you would take it to a place um, and, uh, and leave it there. You would leave the child there and, and, and expose it. So other people, other people frequented these known places where infants were left um, and, and did all sorts of cruel things to them, um, or they would be exposed to the elements and they would die of dehydration or exposure to the weather, wild animals or whatever. And so, um, exposure was seen, uh, as the lesser of the evils, uh, the act- infanticide, although practiced, um, was made illegal, uh, way before exposure was ruled out. Now, we have instances of, of this casual attitude towards infants, either based on deformity or disability upon birth or simply upon being the wrong gender. And uh, there were a great deal of, of girls that were thrown out uh, in the first century. This letter comes to us, it's from 1 BC, and it's from a man called Hilarion, and it's to his wife. He had gone to Alexandria and was writing back to her. He said, no, this is, this is his letter to his wife. Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others, uh, others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you, I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child, and if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. Simply that simple, right? I mean, and that was what, it, and how you would throw it out is that you would expose it. Um, uh, another example, um, yeah, yeah, this was the Aristotle quote about women. Um, <laughs> that women... Um, they were, uh, men were at the pinnacle, women one giant evolutionary step below men, a step which, in Aristotle's telling phrase, represented the first step along the road to deformity. So how, how about that? Um, we, have a, we have an example of, uh, because what would happen? So a little bit more background. What would happen is you would leave, you would expose your child and um, there were places where you would do that publicly. And, and so sometimes you would expose the child and hope that someone rescued the child. You would give the child a token. You would dress the child warmly. Um, you would, you know, there would be some way of identifying the child in the hope that uh, somebody would come along and raise that child as their own. 
more often what happened is that people would come and they would purchase they wouldn't purchase, they would just take these children to raise them as slaves and then to sell them, or to raise them to be household slaves, or to raise them to be prostitutes. And um, and so what would happen if you, if and, and we have records of this, uh, one method of exposure was to nail the ankles of a newborn infant together. So the infant would be less attractive to a passerby who might otherwise have been disposed to rescue the child, right? So you would make the child deformed, in other words, um, to make sure the child would not be, not be rescued. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, says, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle, right? Lest they taint the herd. So an ox, an ox that's too aggressive, we put down a dog that has rabies and has gone mad, we put down sickly cattle, we put down. And then he finally says, in children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. Um, Aristotle in politics says, as to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. But on the ground of number of children, if the regular customs hinder any of those born being exposed, there must be a limit fixed to the procreation of offspring. And if any of these people have a child a result, as a result of intercourse in contravention of these regulations, abortion must be practiced. In other words, we should have rules that in order to form, form child should live. But if they live for any other reason, uh, abortion should be practiced on the child. Uh, uh, Socrates, Socrates, as Bill and Ted would call him, the children of inferior parents or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate. If indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. In the second century AD, there was a, uh, one of the first and most famous ancient gynecologists and he wrote um, an article called How to Recognize a Child, uh, a, the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. All right. And so the child, if it's worth rearing, um, it should be perfect in all of its parts. It should be perfect in its limbs and senses and have passages that are not obstructed, including ears, nose, throat, urethra, anus. Its natural movement should be, be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate. And it should respond to natural stimuli. And then he said, and by conditions contrary to the ones he just mentioned, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. Um, Cicero, um, writing in uh, the second century BC, um, the... Deformed infants should be killed. Uh, Plutarch, discussing the casual acceptance of child sacrifice, mentioned the Carth uh, Carthaginians, <laughs> the people from Carthage who offer up their own children. And those who had no children would buy the little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds while the mother stood by. And so, I mean, I mean, this, again, whether this was poetic license or what, we have enough examples of this. Holy cow, uh, that this was a very, very common practice. 
many of the children that survived being exposed would become slaves. Um, it fueled the supply of, of free labor the, the Roman Empire needed. But the issue came up, and this was um, one of the arguments that the Christians made against exposure is if you expose your daughter um, and then have sex with a prostitute, who knew? Who knows? You may have had sex with your daughter. And, um, and so there were different ways that, that men would try to identify. I mean, it was just, it was sick. It was disgusting. Um, some of the exposed kids were taken home by infertile couples, no question. And they served a beautiful function in that way, but there were other, and, and this was the majority, um, other kids that were raised for sexual gratification of their owners or for others. I mean, it was just... It was just crazy. And, and the, big, the big thing was for slavery. Um, one estimate, this is from Larry Hurtado, who wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. One estimate is that some 500,000 new slaves were needed annually in the Roman Empire and that the slaves reared from discarded infants may have supplied over 150,000 of these. Now, the way exposure worked was the child would be brought to the head of the family, so the man. Um, and although in ancient Sparta it was brought to the community, Sparta's practice of, of exposure was just insane. It was like the Greek view on steroids. And the community would decide whether or not the father would raise the child because the, the, the infant was actually the property of the state in Sparta. Whereas in Greece and then in Rome, it was the, the oldest male, the father, um, who would make that decision. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it, 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 like I said, it was just crazy. So not surprisingly, um, because of some of the reasons we've discussed, the early Christians, uh, followed the example of uh, many voices in the Jewish community in opposing this practice of exposure. Um, even though there were a couple of Romans who, who raised concerns, the, the greatest critique of this came from, from um, the ancient Jews and uh, the early Christians. Um, Philo, for instance, um, called infant exposure the worst abomination of all. Um, Josephus, who was, you know, uh, a, a Jewish historian, but, you know, had kind of lived in collusion with Rome um, he brought up the Jewish law that requires all offspring should be brought up and forbids either abortion or exposure. The, one of the first ethical guides produced by the church is, it was around 100 AD. It was called the Didache. And it says specifically, right, right, I think in the first couple of pages, thou shalt not kill a child by abortion, nor shall thou slay it when it is born. The epistle of Barnabas slated uh, or stated an identical command and then you have throughout the the you know later empire apologists like tortillian um uh, felix just justin martyr who all had huge issues with with this barbaric practice um uh we have in the second century the text from an uh, the text from an unknown author um, who was writing in defense of the Christian way of life. He says, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom, but, uh, and we do not practice an eccentric way of life, but we do 
um, practice. And, and, and two things he points out is very distinctive. Um, we refuse to discard of unwanted babies after birth, and we practice non-retaliation against those who despise or persecute them. Um, there, there were, and let me just, I mean, at the risk of overdoing this, um, there were so many other things that would happen with kids that were deformed or slow. There was actually a scapegoat, um, ritual performed in Greek communities. If something bad had happened that had angered the gods, they would take the dumbest or the ugliest or the most deformed person and either send them away into exile or to kill them. Uh, as an expiatory sacrifice to the gods, which doesn't sound very pleasant at all. And they're, they're, the, the ritual, though, the ritual is absolutely brutal. I'll scare you the, um, I'll spare you the, uh, the details. Um, what would happen is uh, there were some slavers. So, so Seneca told of a story where there was a slaver who would take perfectly healthy infants that had been exposed and he would deform them. So he would cut off a limb, tear out their tongues and eyes. He would beat their shoulder blades into a hump so they were hunchback. And then he would sell them out to beg, figuring that they would bring in more money uh, than just uh, kind of a, a kind of normal looking kid. Um, I'm just flipping through Garland's book. There are just so many. There was a great deal. Uh, they... The people, so particularly if you were deformed, there was a, a big market for you. If you if you made it through exposure, um, and uh, there was a big market, uh, particularly among the later imperial period, where the the Caesars, but then the upper class of Roman society would actually purchase deformed slaves at a premium. Because they were such oddities. They would be used for entertainment uh, at parties. They would be used uh, as household slaves. Uh, dwarves in particular were favored. Um, uh, it's, there was a museum that was formed um, by Pompeii. The Pompeii we all know formed a museum of, of like these culturally deformed and odd people. Um, it's just, there was, a, there was an oath that you could take it about 500 years before the time of Jesus. If I remain faithful to the inscribed oath, may women give birth to children who resemble their parents. If not, may they give birth to monsters. And that was the name for deformed children. Uh, the Latin name was came from the, the word that we translate the, into the word monster. Now, I know that's a whole bunch of, of stuff, and I'm sorry if I've lost you completely, but I want to paint a picture of the fruit of Hellenism on the decisions that were made regarding the vulnerable, the marginalized, the deformed, the disabled, um, and uh, the lack of protections that were in place to care for them. Now, now the fascinating bit, and this could be an entire podcast on its own, is the earliest Christians um, did not organize special interest groups or political parties. I mean, they never directly opposed Caesar. They didn't picket or protest or denounced, um, uh, you know, and advocated for policy. Um, they didn't, you know, publicly condemn the ancient world. Instead, instead, and this, this is where our abortion conversation comes kind of for full circle. Instead, they challenged the ruling powers by simply being faithful being a faithful alternative presence, obedient to God, um, they 
they, their love of neighbor and of the poor and marginalized were the things that that made them stand out and, and in ways that we can't even appreciate. They, they, ex, they opposed infanticide and abortion by rescuing the abandoned children of Rome and raising them as their own, not as slaves. It was an enormous self-sacrificial act at a time when resources were very, very limited and not many rich Christians were out there. I mean, this... This was absolutely incredible. What they would do with plague victims, what they did with the poor, but they would go and they would organize watch nights and they would go to those places where babies were left and try to be the first ones to capture um, the babies as they came in so they could take them, baptize them, catechize them, raise them as Christians. And it's so much so that one of the reasons uh, why Rodney Stark in the book Rise of Christianity attributes the the growth of Christianity to such a high degree is the fact that they they simply uh, adopted into their families all of the kids that would have been discarded by the Roman um, the Roman society and and I, I absolutely love the idea that again they weren't standing outside. Um, yelling baby killers and murderers. They weren't protesting. What they were doing is very quietly, very simply, and it's sometimes at the cost of their own lives. We have a couple of examples of people who are martyred because of their um, their duty to stay at these, these places where infants would be exposed. And they were killed by slavers. They were killed by traitors. Um, were persecuted by city officials because they were disrupting what had turned out to be this incredible... Um, cash sort of making scheme. And so uh, here, here are a couple of parallels as we wrap this up. Again, I hate monologuing. Bonnie uh, will be with us next episode. But it, it strikes me that Hellenism is still alive and well today. And, um, and one of the reasons I know that is uh, because, you know, you can't go anywhere without encountering um, uh, the ideal model of a human figure. Right, the six-pack, buff, um, tiny waist, broad shoulders. I mean, semi-tan. Um, you, my my daughter. My daughter's thirteen, and I mean, we talk about it all the time. The bombardment of the airbrushed ideal of beauty in our culture, right? I mean, virtue um, is is very much seen, not as self-sacrifice um, or or. Um, you know, the sacrificial love for others. But virtue in our society is very much seen in human accomplishment, just like the ancient Greeks. I mean, Hellenism is alive and well. And and one of the things um, that Hellenism spawned was this discarding of infants that weren't wanted or weren't deemed fit. Now, you can you can say about the abortion debate, well, that's not always the case, and I agree that that's not always the case, but it's sometimes the case. And and then I read, I opened up my Twitter feed this morning, I found an article uh, from a medical journal that um, <laughs> that talks about the profiling of embryos for higher IQs. All right, so. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from this thing. I, I, it's called uh, Embryo Editing for Higher IQ is a Fantasy. Embryo Editing is a Fantasy. Embryo Profiling for a Higher IQ is almost here. 
And so uh, from, from the article, embryo profiling capitalizes on the ability to add up the minuscule effects associated with thousands of genetic variants to create what's called a polygenic score. On the basis of this score, researchers can make predictions about the embryo's likelihood of exhibiting given traits from developing cardiovascular disease to going far in school. Um, they have made significant progress in this area. And um, <laughs> the practical value of these predictions based on polygenic scores in humans is still the subject of intense scientific debate. But the equivalent of calculating polygenic scores of cows is already being used to enhance milk production. Not waiting for the scientific debate to be settled about the accuracy of predictions regarding traits as complex as human IQ, a new company is now offering prospective parents the ability to identify and avoid implanting embryos that are likely to have very low IQ. Because, of course, the unwritten assumption here, brothers and sisters, and it's so important we see this, is that the, the infants with low IQ are not worth rearing. Right? Straight out of the playbook. Back then it was, hey, do you have healthy arms and healthy legs and, and you know, can you breathe and all of those you know, basic sort of physical things. But now, if you have a low IQ, clearly, clearly you're not worth rearing. So what, what parents who are editing embryos would want a kid with a low IQ? Right? And, and, and of course, I mean, this isn't happening just yet. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, one of, the, one of the, the, the founder of this company that's beginning to offer this, um, it's not a stretch to uh, suspect that selecting for embryos with the greatest potential for high IQ, as wildly imperfect as the process might be at present, could soon be on the market. Now, again, uh, this is super expensive, so we'll always favor the rich. Um, it is, uh, uh, people, I mean, we're, we're going ahead with this technology and, and it's happening all over the place. I mean, we're reading about technology that allows us to choose gender, uh, different characteristics. Now we can profile for high IQ and, and a man, I don't want to sound like some old fashioned Bible thumper banging away in a pulpit, but doggone it. Yeah. I tell you the truth. The world is better because people like Seth Erie are in it. And there is a movement, small, I mean, but there was a movement, there was a movement in the uh, early 20th century in Nazi Germany. I mean, literally, it was the forced sterilization of 300,000 physically and mentally disabled uh, persons, as well as, I think it was 120,000 um Abortions. Now I have to check. Hold on. Let me see if I can find that. Because I, I was absolutely, it was absolutely staggering. Uh, the numbers. This was a, a program called eugenics, and eugenics was something that was practiced by. Uh, it's it's the selective, selective breeding of the human race towards some sort of master ideal. And, um, and, you know, you see this with Nazis, Nazi Germany. Um, oh, I'm trying to find this quote. I'm sorry. Please fast forward this part. Oh, but it was 300,000 was right. The 120, though, I'm not sure about. Anyway, 
It was an unbelievably high number. And it was all done in the name of making sure that uh, those that were classified as, as less than could not reproduce. Now, what I'm not saying is that every abortion is the result of somebody deciding their infant is not worth rearing, although that may be what the final outcome turns out to be. I think there are more complex factors at play in that decision than just simply that one. Nor do I want to suggest that there is um, uh, some sort of direct you know, correlation between the, the naked brutality of, of infant exposure and early, uh, early abortions you know, within the first trimester. I, don't, I, I, I think those are morally different things. Um, I just simply want to suggest that there are striking parallels between uh, the value systems of the Greeks and Romans, the value system that we practice in America and most of the Western world today with the self and my rights in the middle, myself, my wants, my will, my desires, my dreams, my goals. Um, we don't call it Hellenism anymore. We just call it humanism. And um, there is a deep sense in which I am worried that people like my Seth and many, many others will be edited out of society. That's ha actually happening in, um, in, in some countries like Finland and Denmark, where the abortion rate for, you know, um, uh, infants uh, in utero who are discovered to have Down syndrome is, is off the charts in the 90 percentile. In America, I've heard it's 67%. I've also heard it's 92%. I don't know which one of those is true. 67 probably more likely. But the point is that the value systems guiding the debates seem very, very similar uh, 2,000 years ago to now. And the opportunity for Christians to have the same impact on culture seem, there seem to be parallels 2,000 years ago to now. In other words, shouting baby killer, picketing abortion clinics, um, voting as if, as if someone's stance on abortion was the, the only thing that's important about a candidate, you know, uh, being full of bitterness and anger. Um, shaming and I mean all of that garbage now associated with the pro-life movement um, we just simply have an opportunity very quietly very faithfully and many do this um, walk with those who are in the midst of this difficulty regardless of what they choose and um, and to advocate as much as we are able because I think we all agree the fewer abortions the better right I mean we'd all agree with that and the later the abortion, the worse. Uh, the closer we can say with assurance that, that that child is becoming a person, you know, in some technical biblical sense of the word. Uh, so I saw this, I saw this list circulating around Facebook, and and Facebook, man, is just so interesting to me because I I can hardly stand it. Um, Twitter's becoming like that too. Uh, but but this was I thought this was really good. This is just something floating around. Ways that pro-life Christians uh, can fight abortion rates. One, fight for access to affordable, available birth control options. I agree. Yes, I think I think part of our stewardship over the earth is the practice of birth control. Now, obviously, Catholic folks will disagree with me and say I'm inconsistent, and I, I get it, and boy, that's an interesting conversation for another day. However, in this instance, uh, I would absolutely argue that birth control is by far the better option. 
uh, to reduce the abortion rates than any other option. Um, uh, we want to support science-based thorough sex ed. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, we want to encourage, uh, we want to be people who foster and who adopt, treat, and I love this, treat these mothers and post-abortion women with the same love you have for their babies. Ooh, there's a, there's a shocker. Destigmatize being an unwed mother. You can't create a culture where women are judged and shamed and then expect them to not look for a way out. Oh, what a great point. Hold men accountable. Yes, damn it. Absolutely. See, I, I think that, I, I mean, it, we did an episode on this like years ago, but it was, I, I think uh, abortion on demand harms women because it, it gives men the opportunity to buy their way out and to not take responsibility. Um, fight for a living wage, fight for affordable housing, fight for a better foster care system, fight for decent parental leave, fight for available affordable health care. Um, don't just target ta- laws and legislation on Facebook. Um, women have been having abortions long before it was legal. Um, and, and, and be pro-life from, as they say now, from the womb to the tomb. In other words, we care about refugees, we care about immigrants, we care about orphans, we care about addicts, we care about the poor, we care about the minorities, we care about the LGBTQ community. Why? We care about the trans community. Why? Because they're all made in the flipping image of God. And if one human person is sacred because of that, then all of us are sacred because of that. We simply cannot any longer afford to single out one issue and declare that to be the litmus test for everything else. It's not the way it works. And, um, and, I, and I think, uh, and I've had great conversations with people who are very much on the pro-choice side of things, um, there is a great deal of common ground uh, to be found in, in desiring to reduce abortions, but because it's so polarized and politicized, the funding common ground will be hugely costly for both sides, so they don't do it. So, and again, who am I? I'm just some dude in Columbus, right? I'm no doctor. I'm no sociologist. All I know is, as I've thought about the uh, abortion discussion, this is what keeps popping into my head, particularly as I play love and delight with one Seth Erie, who, according to all ancient standards, would be an infant not worth rearing, an infant that would be exposed, and to some modern standards, an infant not worth rearing, an infant to be discarded. And I just simply say that is, that is, that is any system that seeks to build a hierarchy of image bearers over other image bearers is demonic and it's from the pit of hell. And we need to oppose it in loving service and sacrifice in every way imaginable. And that, and that really, for me, that's my thought on abortion is um, it's part of a much bigger conversation. And if, if some of that conversation would, being, would, would be had, then I think our approach to the individual politicized issue of abortion would be much different. So there you have it, sports fans. Um, I, I hope in some way, shape, or form, this is helpful. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Thank you, my friends.